This week, Senate Rule of Files Chapter 11, SAS Judge Approved $700 million Dip Despite Concerns Around Equity-Linked Features, Twitter Judge Denies Musk's Motion to Push Trial to November, Grants Musk's Request to Amend Counterclaims Following Whistleblower Complaint, Fifth Circuit Issues New Opinion Revising Highland Capital Plan Injunction and Gatekeeper Provisions. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring the latest developments in high-yield distress debt and bankruptcy. I'm David Zubkis. Julian Boulon will be joining me for the Week in Review. For this week's deep dive, we offer a replay of our August webinar, Winter King for COVID-Era Darlings, Distress in Crypto and Tech, where Reorg's Harvard Zhang moderates a discussion with a panel of experts on the current state of distress in crypto and tech, as well as the circumstances that led the market to where it is and what the future may hold. It's Friday, September 9th. UK-based Cineworld Group PLC, the second largest cinema chain operator in the world and parent of Regal Entertainment, filed Chapter 11 petitions in the U.S. Bankruptcy Court for the Southern District of Texas on Wednesday. The filing includes more than 100 affiliates in the U.S., U.K., Ireland, and Jersey, but does not include related entities in Bulgaria, Czech Republic, Hungary, Israel, Poland, Romania, and Slovakia, also known as the ROW, or Rest of the World, segment. The company attributes its filing to the COVID-19 pandemic. After selling 275 million movie tickets in 2019, the debtors and their non-debtor affiliates sold only 54.4 million in 2020, with the stock price dropping by 92% from April 2019 to October 2020. The company says it also faced delays in film release and production schedules causing short-term losses and a multi-year ripple effect. In addition, Cineworld points to streaming filling the void of going to the cinema. Debtors have secured commitments for a $1.935 billion dip financing facility provided by certain members of an ad hoc group of existing term loan lenders, of which $664 million will be used to fund the debtor's ordinary course operations, $1 billion to refinance outstanding obligations of the prepetition priming facilities, and $271 million to facilitate a transaction in which a newly incorporated group entity will purchase the ROW loans. The DIP facility is provided and otherwise supported by holders of nearly 58% of Cineworld's entire capital structure and will be fully backstopped by certain members of the ad hoc group, while all pre-petition legacy term lenders will be offered the opportunity to participate in the syndication of the DIP. The Cineworld debtors are continuing to negotiate with the term loan group on a comprehensive restructuring that would provide financing to fund go-forward operation, significantly reduce debt, and rationalize the debtors' burdensome U.S. lease portfolio. Judge Marvin Isger, at the conclusion of a lengthy first-day hearing on Thursday, approved on an interim basis a modified DIP facility agreed to by the debtors and the DIP lenders to address the court's concerns over the proposal to use DIP proceeds to refinance $1 billion in pre-petition priming loans. The $1 billion will be placed into escrow and be subject to an October 31st challenge period for the priming term loans, meaning the refinancing could not occur until the period experienced without a challenge. If there's a successful challenge, the $1 billion in escrow would be returned to the DIP lenders and the priming term loans would remain outstanding. The dip was otherwise uncontested other than minor issues from landlords and the U.S. trustee, which were resolved. On Friday, Judge Michael Wiles approved the SAS debtor's proposed $700 million dip facility with Apollo Global Management, delivering a bench ruling Friday afternoon after taking the matter under advisement at the conclusion of a two-day dip hearing. Judge Wiles approved the dip notwithstanding his doubts and misgivings over the two equity-linked features of the proposed dip, a call option and tag rate for Apollo. The call option would give Apollo the option to subscribe for equity in the reorganized debtors under a plan based on a $3.2 billion assumed total enterprise value. If the debtors pursue an alternative transaction, Apollo would have the option to convert some or all of the outstanding dip loans to equity or to purchase equity for cash. The tag rate would give Apollo the right to subscribe for up to 30% of a new money equity raise with a third party on the same terms made available to such third party. Both options are terminable by the debtors subject to a $19.5 million call option and a $21 million tag rate termination fee. 
In making his ruling, Judge Wiles rejected the debtor's argument that the right to participate in a plan process is a property right that the debtors can sell under Section 363 of the Bankruptcy Code outside the context of a plan process. Judge Wiles also noted the fact that the call option and tag right are terminable weighed heavily in his analysis, pointing out that he has uniformly rejected dip proposals that would have guaranteed dip lenders a specified percentage of reorganized equity. Such provisions have no business in dip loans and should be reserved for the plan process, said the judge. He also expressed skepticism over the debtor's assurances that the equity-linked features were granted in exchange for a reduced interest rate and are unlikely to impede a competitive plan sponsorship process because they are revocable and because the termination fees are relatively small in relation to the equity that would eventually be raised. Those arguments did little to lay his concerns, said the judge, adding that we have learned anything. It is that if we open a door in one case, the door gets pushed open wider in the next case. The judge added that he was not persuaded by the debtor's evidence on the potential costs and benefits of the deal, which consisted primarily of a probability-weighted analysis of potential outcomes, and said that whether it's a good deal depends entirely on currently unknown factors, such as the debtor's actual enterprise value and whether third parties or Apollo itself remained interested in sponsoring a plan when the time comes. Having laid out his reservations, Judge Wall said he was not willing to deny the dip motion based on abstract principles, noting the lack of objections as the official committee of unsecured creditors supported the dip, and the existence of some precedent for these types of arrangements, citing the Aeromexico dip approved by Judge Shelley Chapman in 2020. He added that he was hesitant to substitute his instincts as to economics in place of the judgments of the parties who have an actual economic interest and observed that he has no evidence that the debtors UCC are clearly wrong in their judgment, and therefore he would not disregard their consensus. Chancellor Kathleen St. Jude McCormick on Wednesday, September 7th, granted Elon Musk's motion for leave to file amended counterclaims against Twitter following reports of a whistleblower complaint brought by former Twitter executive Peter Zatko. In the same order, McCormick denied Musk's request to amend the case schedule and delay the trial until November. In granting Musk's motion to amend, Chancellor McCormick cited the Chancery Rule that allows for liberal amendment in the interest of resolving cases on the merits. The Chancellor holds that Zacco's whistleblower complaint would be grounds in most instances to permit an amendment under the quote-unquote low bar of the Chancery's rules. Twitter's assertions that the motion should be denied because the amendment would be futile, quote, falter against the exceedingly movement-friendly standard, end quote, of the court's rules. The Chancellor was, quote, reticent to say more concerning the merits of the counterclaims at this posture before they have been fully litigated, end quote, and added that the world will have to wait for the post-trial decision. The Chancellor's order criticized aspects of Musk's production of materials during discovery, stating that Musk's production of text messages revealed glaring deficiencies and that defendants' approach to answering interrogatories also left much to be desired. Chancellor McCormick wrote that defendants have now cured many of the deficiencies about which plaintiff have complained in its motion and denied Twitter's request for an expansive set of text messages from two custodians, as well as, quote, sworn statements regarding defendants' collection efforts and other issues, end quote. The Chancellor also denied a request by Twitter for an immediate custodial deposition of Musk, noting that Twitter will be deposing Musk quite soon given the case schedule and may ask Musk whatever custodial questions it would like to ask during his deposition. The Chancellor added that Twitter's arguments that the amendment would be prejudicial because it would extend discovery and the case schedule are far more forceful than the company's futility arguments, and that any such prejudice can be mitigated by cabining additional discovery to the new allegations and maintaining the existing case schedule. The order permits the Musk defendants only incremental discovery relevant to the new allegations, which can be made through targeted document discovery and minimal additional experts and fact witnesses. The order also requires the parties to confer immediately to attempt to negotiate reasonable parameters for the additional discovery. In denying Musk's motion to extend the case schedule, 
The chancellor rejected arguments that she says are similar to those involved in Twitter's motion to expedite, holding that the longer the delay until trial, the greater the risk of irreparable harm to Twitter. Citing Twitter's arguments that a risk or harm has materialized over the course of this litigation, including employee retention issues and the strains of managing the company under a repudiated merger agreement, Chancellor McCormick concludes that she is convinced that even four weeks delay would risk further harm to Twitter too great to justify. The Chancellor granted a Twitter request to the court to suspend Twitter's third-party discovery deadlines. This request is reasonable, the order states, but noted that the trial is still on and so third-party discovery must happen promptly. Chancellor McCormick also granted Twitter's request to obtain and produce phone company records concerning the text messages that Musk and advisor Jared Birchall sent or received during the relevant period. The order concludes that this production will allow plaintiff to confirm whether defendants' representations that Musk did not text about Twitter during key periods are accurate. In the Highland Capital Management cases, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit issued an opinion on Wednesday granting a petition for panel rehearing brought by a set-pellant CLO funds affiliated with former Highland President and CEO James Dondero. The funds sought clarification of the Fifth Circuit's August 19th opinion as to whether certain, quote, impermissibly exculpated parties, end quote, are similarly struck from the injunction and gatekeeper provisions of Highland's plan. The plan's injunction and gatekeeper provisions enjoin parties from pursuing litigation against protected parties without prior permission of the bankruptcy court. The circuit court's August 19th decision has affirmed, in large part, Judge Stacey Jernigan's confirmation of Highland Capital Management's fifth amended plan. However, the three-judge panel did find that the plan's exculpation provision protected certain non-debtors in violation of Section 524E of the Bankruptcy Code and Fifth Circuit precedent, and so struck the exculpation except with respect to Highland, the UCC, and the independent directors who were acting as bankruptcy trustee. The Wednesday opinion withdrew the prior opinion and substituted a nearly identical opinion to clarify the court's conclusion that appellant's argument that the plan injunction is overbroad because it releases non-debtors in violation of Section 524E is resolved by the court's striking of, quote, impermissibly exculpated parties. Specifically, the revised opinion strikes the first sentence of its analysis of the injunction and gatekeeper provisions, which provides that, quote, the injunction and gatekeeper provisions are, on the other hand, perfectly lawful, end quote. Top red stories this week included Second Circuit reverses SDNY decision in Revlon mistaken transfer appeal, 3M litigation injunction rejected in Arrow, recent cases use novel prepack maneuvers, and a troublesome dissent in PG&E. Bausch law market decline may enable Bausch Health to complete spinoff without meeting pro forma ratio tests, rack space asset sale analysis, new coverage, Lynette, service properties trust, Glatfelter, Lifestance Health, Lycra exploring all options to refinance 2023 maturities. Disappointing Q2 results due to macroeconomic challenges, margins, working capital expected to improve in Q4, 50 million euros cash at August. And now here's Kathy from Los Angeles with the week ahead. Hello, this is Kathy Tong, and here's the week ahead. On Monday, September 12th, a multi-week trial will kick off in the Samson Resources Settlement Trust long-standing fraudulent transfer adversary proceeding against various Samson defendants. The suit seeks to recover billions in transfers related to Samson's 2011 leveraged buyout led by KKR. On Tuesday, September 13th, the TPC debtors will be in court to get approval of the disclosure statement to their amended Chapter 11 plan. This hearing was continued from last week to facilitate the debtors' negotiations with class plaintiffs in multi-district litigation and the UCC. Also on Tuesday, September 13th, in litigation coverage, the Senate Judiciary Committee is slated to hear testimony in connection with the whistleblower complaint against Twitter. 
That same day, All Year Holdings will be in court to face off its William Vale Hotel property co-owner, Zaley Weiss, on dueling threshold motions over the party's rights under an operating agreement, particularly with respect to the transferability of the debtor's interests in the hotel. Mediation between the parties is proceeding in parallel. There are several matters up for Wednesday, September 14th. First, the Arrow debtors will ask Judge Jeffrey Graham to enjoin plaintiff's law firms from pursuing a transfer of the debtors' Chapter 11 cases to the Florida District Court handling the Combat Arms Airplex multi-district litigation. At the same time, the debtors will seek to lift the automatic stay to proceed with six multi-district litigation appeals pending before the 11th Circuit. Also on Wednesday, the LTL management debtors will ask Judge Michael Kaplan to stop New Mexico and Mississippi from pursuing consumer protection lawsuits against Parent Johnson & Johnson. The debtors say injunctive relief is needed to protect their mediation efforts to resolve talk claims. That same day, the U.S. trustee will request for authority to appoint an examiner in the Celsius debtors' cases. Although the debtors and the UCC have reached an agreement with the U.S. trustee to narrow the scope of the investigation, state regulators are insisting that the scope of investigation be expanded. Brazos Electric Power Cooperative will also be in court on Wednesday, September 14th, to seek approval of its settlement resolving rejection damages claims of Brazos Sandy Creek Electric Cooperative. The UCC has filed an objection, raising several concerns with respect to the various rights to be provided to the claims, and is urging that the settlement be incorporated into the debtor's plan or adjourned to plan confirmation. On Thursday, September 15th, the Altera Infrastructure Debtors will be in court for a second-day hearing, primarily to seek final approval of first-day operational matters. As for earnings, they will be released by Neiman Marcus on Thursday, September 15th. That's it for me on this Friday, September 9th. Now back to you in New York. And next up for this week's Deep Dive, we offer a replay of our August webinar, Winter Came from COVID Era Darlings, where we are Harvard Jang hosts a panel of experts who discuss the current state of distress in crypto and tech, as well as the circumstances that led the market to where it is and what the future may hold. Featured on the panel are Gregory Pesha, partner in White and Cases Insolvency and Restructuring Group, Heath Gray, Senior Manager Director at FTI Consulting, and Jason New, Managing Partner and Co-Founder of Nova Wolf Digital Management. Okay, let's start. Uh, the global crypto market cap uh, jumped 1,060% since the beginning of COVID to nearly $3 trillion at the end of last year. That's about the same size as the U.S. leveraged finance market. But since its peak, crypto has lost almost, almost two-thirds of its value to about $1 trillion now. Tech companies took advantage of a flood of cheap capital during COVID, but just like crypto, many have lost a significant portion of their value or even filed for bankruptcy. Today, we will discuss distress in crypto and tech, two pandemic-era darlings. How we got here, what is the status quo, and what's next? My name is Harvard Jha. I break news on distress debt and corporate restructuring for Reorg Research, and we have an awesome panel. Greg Pesce, partner in the financial restructuring and insolvency practice of White & Case. Greg represents um, issuers, creditors, shareholders, and other stakeholders in complex restructurings. He advised Global A&T, Electronics, Westmoreland Coal, Whiting Petroleum, Acorn, and more importantly and recently, the, the official unsecured creditors committee in the Celsius Network Chapter 11 case. And we have Heath Gray, Senior Managing Director at FTI Consulting. Heath advises companies on large-scale transformations, turnarounds, and M&A. He has extensive experience in the TMT space, having advised Aspen Technology, Media, media math, etc. He's also worked on 
numerous high-profile restructuring cases, including Latam Airlines, Garamotion, and Cloud Communications uh, company Peridium. Last but not least, we have Jason New, co-founder and managing partner of Nova Wolf Digital Management, investing in digital assets and associated infrastructure for a decentralized age. Before this life, Jason was CEO of Onyx Credit with $23 billion of assets under management. And before that, he was the co-head of distress and special situations for GSO. I think it's called um, Blackstone Credit now, by the way. Uh, we will take questions from attendees, so please feel free to submit questions at, at any time using the uh, Q&A widget at the bottom of your screen. And for housekeeping, we will record this webinar and a replay will be available for uh, our uh, Reworks clients on our website within two business days. Okay, we have an A-list panel and there's a lot to discuss, so let's dive right in. Uh, let's talk about crypto first and then uh, we'll uh, go to tech. Um, I, I think before we uh, go into the weeds, I think it's helpful to talk about the fundamentals. You know, what is cryptocurrency, uh, blockchain, uh, DeFi, staking? What are some of the most um, uh, important vocabularies and uh, lexicon to understand what why crypto has value? Um, Jason, do you want to get us started? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to do it. That's a lot to take on. So I'll, I'll try to do it quickly and... Um, uh, I'll try to use more. I'm not going to give like technical definitions per se, but, um, you know, look, I think cryptocurrency in some respects is a bit of a misnomer. I think a lot of digital assets um, or tokens are not even purporting to be currencies per se. I think um, you have a lot of different use cases for digital assets, broadly speaking, um, but they've all been sort of lumped within this terminology of cryptocurrencies. I think in large part because Bitcoin, which was the first, um, is, uh, was originally developed to be, a, to be a peer to peer payment network, um, on a decentralized and trustless basis. Um, so, and, and now you've got multiple different cryptocurrencies, a lot of which people are going to be familiar with. The second largest being Ethereum. Um, but I could, I could continue and there are different types, which I'll go into in a second. But, uh, in essence, uh, it, it's a tokenized, uh, asset that is tracked if you will, on a blockchain, then that begs the question, what's a blockchain? Um, a blockchain is basically just a digital ledger. Um, I, I, you know, I think um, it's not, it can have more, you know, like fancy type applications, but effectively it is just that a digital ledger. And what was, um, I think, more revolutionary about Bitcoin was pairing blockchain technology with cryptography, um, which allows you to have a trustless, peer-to-peer -peer network where um, you can verify transactions in a way between two people who don't even know each other, don't necessarily trust each other, but have it effective uh, across a long-standing, um, in the case of Bitcoin, you know, close to 14-year blockchain uh, that's been effective. Um, so, you know, that's, that's in essence what it is. Um, there's a lot of use cases. There's also a lot of different types of coins. Um, so people talk about, um, you know, things like a utility token, which has sort of different, um, you know, applications where you would have that token because you then want to use it to pay effectively, quote, pay for something. So think about like Binance coin, which allows you to transact on Binance. You then have governance tokens, which a lot of crypto organizations are organized as something they could refer to as a DAO. Um, 
And what a governance token does is basically give you rights to vote on things that 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 DAO is doing. So, uh, you know, a, a, a large, larger market cap one would be something like uh, the uni token, which gives you voting rights on Uniswap by way of example. Um, so, and then you have uh, stable coins, which are a very large part of the crypto ecosystem, something like USDC, which is operated by Circle or Tether, um, which are, you know, I would think of them as um, they're tokenized uh, coins that are backed by things like T-bills um, to support sort of a one-to-one valuation equivalent to, in the case of USDC, the U.S. dollar, for example. Um, so those are some different types of, of, of coins. Um, you mentioned DeFi. Um, DeFi or decentralized finance is really something that's evolved in the past few years, Wherein, think about, you know, Greg wants to borrow money from me. Um, let's say he's got a bunch of Bitcoin or Ethereum. He wants to borrow against that. One thing he could do is post, let's just say, two Bitcoin, which is worth approximately $40,000 of collateral. I could then loan him USDC, let's just say, worth $20,000, some two to one over collateralized in that instance. Um, we would then set that up through something called a smart contract, which is really just a com- computer code. And within that could be embedded a margin trigger such that if Bitcoin price were to drop um, to the point where I'm not two to one collateralized, maybe I'm one and a half to one. At that point, either Greg would have to post more Bitcoin or there'd be an automatic liquidation of that collateral pursuant to the smart contract. So that that's that's an example of the way sort of DeFi works. It can be more nuanced, but in its simplest form, that's kind of DeFi. Um, and then staking is um, where you have, you already own a token. Um, and that token, the, the network on which that token operates or the, is a proof of stake network. So think something like, uh, you know, Cardano or Solana, Polkadot type of thing. Um, not Bitcoin, which is proof of work, or Ethereum, which is currently proof of work, um, but likely switching to proof of stake. Um, but what you can do then is in order to uh, validate transactions on the blockchain, let's just use Cardano. I would post my Cardano into a pool or I could, if I owned enough, I could operate my own pool. And then I would earn more Cardano from the network by validating transactions. And there, that's as people refer to sort of a staking yield, I would be getting paid in more Cardano. So, um, and, and then I also, if I was a bad actor on that, on that network and I validated transactions, which otherwise should not have been in certain instances, I would run the risk of actually losing some of my Cardano I posted. Um, and that's referred to as slashing, but it, it, what it tries to do is incent people to be good actors, maintain the network or the blockchain, um, and allow the network to, to, to sort of operate. Um, so, you know, I'll pause there because I know we have a lot to go through, but those are, I'd say, are examples of the basic terminology. Yeah, it's very helpful. And I will note that, you know, everything that Jason said, he didn't mention like, you know, government or, you know, tr- using the traditional financial institution like a bank to conduct all those any of those transactions but um let's talk about you know distress in this reorg how does a you know crypto related company become distressed how do they get into you know financial trouble um greg do you want to take that one 
Sure. And your reference to a bank is sort of a good segue here, because what is happening in the crypto industry right now is essentially uh, an old fashioned run on the bank that you might have seen before you had the uh, the FDIC or the Federal Reserve. Effectively, earlier this year, there was uh, there was an organization called Terra Luna. It had uh, its own token and then it had other tokens sort of linked to the U.S., dollar called stable coins um, for reasons that are, are fairly complicated. There was sort of a crisis of confidence in those current in those crypto assets, in those tokens um, that led to effectively a an implosion of the market capitalization of of those coins. And that then had knock on effects in other parts of the crypto ecosystem. In particular, um, there were a, a number of hedge funds that had significant exposure to uh, to Terra Luna. That led those hedge funds, uh, most notably uh, Three Hours Capital, to be unable to pay their loans to other uh, other uh, uh, crypto businesses. And in turn, when news of that started to leak out, the users on platforms such as Voyager and Celsius um, began to withdraw certain types of crypto currencies and digital assets from those platforms. In turn, those platforms, uh, and again, this is just from what we, you know, what is public reporting, and these are issues that are being investigated in both of those bankruptcies. Um, but what has been publicly reported is that when users began to withdraw uh, their cryptocurrencies and digital assets, those businesses in turn uh, couldn't uh, continue to provide the yield or manage the investments that they had been making in other businesses, some in the cryptocurrency space, some in other industries that they had been using to uh, to to provide the high level of yield that uh, was that made cryptocurrency and digital assets attractive to uh, to investors. Um, eventually, you know, the two largest ones are Voyager and Celsius. Uh, those companies, uh, uh, what, what is called, they, they, they threw down the gates effectively and prevented people from withdrawing further cryptocurrency and digital assets from the platforms. And then in uh, some short time period after that, they went into Chapter 11 to restructure their liabilities and the remaining assets. And uh, that's <clears throat> those are those are there now. And then obviously, there's other uh, platforms that are outside the United States that are going through other types of liquidations in um, in Singapore. Uh, Three Arrows, the hedge fund, as I mentioned, is in liquidation proceeding in the Cayman Islands, and uh, that's also having some proceedings in New York. Definitely reminds me of 2008 and financial crisis. How right. Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns are all <laughs> related because of the exposure they have right. on each other's books. Right. Um, exactly. Reorg is actually planning for another webinar so focused solely on crypto restructurings, but I just want to get our panelists' take on, you know, there's so many things to talk about, but while they are in, you know, bankruptcy and restructuring, what are some of the most crucial things to um, focus on and resolve and address uh, when they are actually going through a proceeding? Um, Heath, you want to start? And then, like, Jason, Greg, please go for it, John. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I think that with these first couple of cases, people are focused on pretty much everything because there's a lot of new and unique issues that are being resolved in real time. Uh, they're going to be, you know, very influential in what happens in subsequent cases. Um, but to just focus on a few, I mean, the big questions are with these lenders specifically: who owns the crypto assets or the deposits or those those customer assets or those property of the estate? Um, what's the value of those claims against the company? And is that in the crypto that it's 
it was deposited? Is it in USD? And as of what date should that be struck? Um, there's big questions about where those assets sit within the corporate org structure relative to you know other business assets and then the liabilities and what that's going to mean for recoveries for the different uh, creditor groups out there. And then, you know, thinking about those assets and other assets, you know, are there any unencumbered assets to support dip financing to run a case here um, that would be longer than just a liquidation? And then I guess the the biggest question that is is pretty hilarious, but there's a question of what is crypto, which my grandpa asked me all the time. But uh, the answer of whether or not that's going to be a security or a commodity or if it's currency or money uh, has some some big ramifications on not only these debtors, but but across the industry. And it's it's being worked out in Washington right now and in these courtrooms as well. But, you know, that question is impacting administrative matters like simply, you know, how are we protecting cash and investments or, or money and investments that the U.S. trustees office cares a lot about? And then bigger picture, you know, if these bankruptcy courts determine that some or all of these cryptocurrencies are in fact securities and the debtors are acting like stockbrokers that puts these cases on a much different trajectory than they are now and certainly would play into you know future jurisdictional analysis on where to file i'm sure i'm sure greg and jason have some points of view on that as well yeah i'm i'm not burdened by being uh you know, representing either company. So maybe I'm, I'll speak a little more freely probably than Greg and uh, he might be able to. But, um, you know, like I, I think the dollarization or whether or not the claims are dollarized at the petition date, I think is a big deal because I think a lot of people look, for example, Ethereum's up materially from the day Celsius and Voyager filed for bankruptcy. Um, you know, so I think if you're if you're someone who, quote, deposited ETH, you would want that to be have an ETH claim. I think the problem is, though, looking at the asset side of the balance sheet at both Celsius and Voyager, that the asset side does not match the liability side in terms of where those currencies are. So um, it would be, I, I think, quite challenging to sort of get people back exactly what they put in, um, absent perhaps somebody come in and acquiring it like an FTX or somebody who has a big balance sheet who could kind of do that reshuffling for you. Um, I think that's that's a big issue um, and quite complicated. I think also you have types of different types of uh, investors. Some were in a quote custody account, for example, in Celsius, where I think you could. I think clearly those entities are going to argue that that it's being held effectively, kind of in trust or in custody for them, and is their asset. And I think that issue will get resolved in in both these types of cases. Whereas if you were in what they call an earn account at Celsius. Um, my own, I'm not going to play, war, I'll play war for a second. Greg don't, doesn't have to opine, but like, I think you probably have a better argument. You're, it's probably a better argument. You're a general unsecured creditor in that, that instance. Um, but the time will tell. And I agree. I think the overall securities regulatory landscape is really important here because, um, if these entities are trying to reorganize, um, which I'm very skeptical of personally. Um, I, I don't know why you would keep deposits with these entities on a go forward basis, given the lack of trust you should have, but that's my own opinion. Um, but if these entities are trying to reorganize, I think it's going to be hard to reorganize if there's a credible argument that you're no longer, or you were never compliant with U.S. securities regulation. Um, 
you know, that's again, my opinion, but I think that's pretty challenging. And I, I look, I think the entire crypto ecosystem needs a regulatory framework uh, to thrive and flourish. Um, and I'm actually hopeful that some of these, um, you know, bankruptcies and insolvency proceedings where people are going to actually lose real money will spur the regulators to take action and protect um, particularly non-accredited investors in the U.S., but I, I think all investors need protection in certain instances here. Yeah, and just yeah. Uh, you know, speaking solely for myself and and not for the uh, the committee or other people that my firm might represent, I think that you all hit the the topics that are going to be implicated in these bankruptcies uh, very well. Obviously, what is what is property of the estate um, are different types of coins do they represent different types of property of the estate issues um how do you how do you maintain and hold uh cryptocurrencies and digital assets is it like money these are all um the the grist for what's going to be going on for the next few months based on what i what you can see in the public filings and voyager celsius and some of these other uh, matters that are just coming to the fore and then just to hit on what 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 jason said yeah i think the regulatory framework here, you know, is both uh, a real uh, accelerant for the for uh, for these businesses. But now that they're in um, Chapter 11, and now that so many regulators, as you can read in the media are, are focused on it, navigating uh, what what the regulations presently say, what they might say in the future is going to be a real determinant of whether there's some kind of reorganization or if it's a sale in any of these types of uh, any of these types of situations. That's great. And I think people have also mentioned, you know, um, a preference claim is, you know, crypto was stolen and cash subsequently transferred out within 90 days um, of the bankruptcy filing. That's just, you know, another like preference issue. But since we touched on um, uh, regulation, do you guys have any, any you know, uh, anything more want to, you guys want to say on, you know, because this is like a, it seems like there's like a slew of agencies that have things to say, like Treasury, SEC, CFTC, Congress, they're all trying to weigh in on, um, if regulations needed, like what needs to happen? Um, yeah. Go ahead, Greg. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, I, I think that's, you know, just building off of what I was just saying, I think there's a big question of what the impact of the current regulations are. I think uh, all of these different regulators and the legislators are going to be looking at what happens in these bankruptcies. Um, I, you know, <clears throat> but um, I think, you know, the one silver lining that you see here is that there is a there's a strong desire by these companies, um, you know, their creditors committees and, and I think even the regulators to make sure that the account holders are protected. You know, I think the question is just uh, threading the needle to make sure that those, you know, that, that given how fluid the situation is, that's done in a quick, timely manner in these cases. But I'll uh, I'll leave it at there because there's so many of these issues and some of these situations we're involved with. Yeah, I was just look, I, I think in order, it's more big picture comment. I think in order to get broad institutional adoption of the asset class, I think you need regulatory clarity. Clearly, uh, Gary Densor's taken the position that I pretty much said everything other than Bitcoin is a security. It'll be interesting. Ethereum is moving from proof of work to proof of stake, which has some implications on whether or not that will be deemed to be a security. I'm not so sure. That transition is ultimately dispositive, but I think it, 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 it probably makes it feel more like a security than less um, if once it moves to proof of stake. And I, I think that's going to be a big deal. Um, you know, most of the regulatory or the most of the congressional 
uh, proposals that have been made, for example, like Lummis and Gillibrand have really put more of the regulatory framework under the CFTC as a commodity as opposed to the SEC. And I think you have a bit of a turf war uh, going on between those two uh, in particular. Um, and then you get the whole stablecoin regulatory environment too, which is a whole nother issue. But I, I mean, these are big issues. And I think even more than that, look, I'll, I look at Celsius and I've managed hedge funds for 20, almost 20 years. And Celsius was effectively operating like a hedge fund, what they were doing with the deposits. And it'd be nice to be able to raise money from retail investors with no right, you know, not have to register with the SEC, not really have to do anything. It's, it, you know, that feels pretty inappropriate to me how they did that. Um, and I think, you know, the regulators really owe it to people to change that and, and clarify that going forward. Great. That's um, very interesting. And I think as Jason and all the panelists have mentioned, so far we seem to have only seen crypto banks and exchanges in restructuring. And I was wondering if there's any more distress out there um, in the crypto and DeFi and infrastructure ecosystems. Um, what types of companies would it be and why would a restructuring be needed uh, needed for those companies? Um, Jason, do you want to? Sure. I, I, look, I think the, the, the Bitcoin miners, I mean, right now where you have more traditional debt in the space is really the Bitcoin miners. Coinbase has some debt that trades at a discount to par and MicroStrategy, which is just uh you know, kind of was a software company, but now is a company that just has a lot of Bitcoin on balance sheet. Um, and, you know, so I would say the miners are an area where um, you could see stress. I think you have stress right now. Um, they have large capital needs. Um, it's a commodity oriented business because you have a commodity output in Bitcoin, which the, pr the price for which you really can't control as a miner. And then your hot, your cost or your cogs are really driven by energy prices or power prices, which also are very high. So Bitcoin mining profitability is getting squeezed. It's a capital intensive business. Um, and there is leverage in that space. Uh, Marathon, which is one of the larger companies, has a convert that trades at a, a deep discount to par. Um, you just saw Stronghold do what was effectively an out of court restructuring um, and giving some mining equipment back to NIDIG, who was their lender, uh, and doing some other things with their balance sheet. So I think that's an area where you potentially have, um, you know, stress. Um, I think that creates a lot of opportunity from an investment perspective uh, for those people who understand both crypto and then more traditional capital markets and restructurings. Um, but I, I think that's that's a big opportunity. And then I think as the ecosystem evolves and you have more companies financed, uh, you know, in ways other than just pure equity, I, I think you'll see some bumps along the road and growing pains and some companies will have to restructure. Great. Um, I think we can start transitioning to tech, but just a reminder, if you guys, any attendee um, has questions, please feel free to use the Q&A widget and we will address them either all, along the way or at the end of this webinar. Um, I think again, for tech, um, before we go into the weeds, I think it would be helpful to set the stage and give a little bit of a background on the history of tech investing via leverage loans and High yield uh, bonds and other securities, um, just to get a sense of get a sense of what has been the the evolution of tech investing. I'm going to turn to you again, Jason, for, to give us the 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 history. 
Sure. Um, so I would say if you go back, you know, and I'm showing my age a little bit here because I was uh, at a firm that no longer exists called Donaldson, Lufkin and Genred at the time. But in the late 90s, you had a lot of capital that was raised um, for principally telecom companies and, you know, sort of the first wave of dot coms. But the dot coms were principally financed through um, equity issuances, although some had converts, including Amazon, which people may not remember. But, you know, after 9-11, Amazon actually had a convert that traded at a very deep discount to par, um, which is pretty amazing given the market cap of the company today. Um, but, you know, so you kind of had um, a little bit of distress in tech, but it wasn't a lot because there weren't that many companies with any debt um, after after 9-11. But then you had a few buyouts, um, in, like in the hardware space. So in semis, so like Freescale or Navaya, for example, happened prior to the great financial crisis. But then after the financial crisis, you just have an, had an explosion in tech LBO activity, principally in enterprise software, uh, with firms like Vista and Tom and Bravo and Francisco, et cetera. But, um, it's pretty much everywhere. It's now become a very large part of the leveraged finance market, particularly the loan market. Um, you know, there's a lot of loan issuers um, that are software companies and technology related businesses. Um, you haven't had a ton of defaults yet in that space, um, but that's been a big growth area. And then private credit providers. So think, you know, Blackstone, KKR, Alrock, Golub, et cetera, have also been incredibly active um, in supporting, um, you know, tech LBO activity. And you've seen some recent transactions, what they call recurring revenue loans, which have been made to high growth tech businesses that don't necessarily have, you know, they certainly don't have earnings and, you know, they have a lot of revenue and the revenue is growing and they may be very, very valuable businesses. But if you look at it sort of on a debt to EBITDA basis, the way a traditional leverage finance person would look, uh, either it's kind of NA or the multiples are extraordinarily high. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how some of those things play out because you know, like the great news about, you know, tech is it's, it's very quickly evolving. A lot of these are very good businesses. Um, but the disruption element also is pretty high. So, you know, could you see some of these LBOs be disrupted by, you know, a newer, better mousetrap that comes along? We'll just have to see. Um, but uh, it, it's a very big part of the market now. Yeah, I think maybe just building off of that, you um, <clears throat> you saw a, you know, a great number of these um, SPACs get formed and then they did de-SPAC transactions. So, you know, whereas in the past you were looking at like more traditional LBOs that then went belly up you know, in the, you know, the, in the early 2000s, the 2010s, you know, I think the thing that people are looking at now is, um, are these DSPAC transactions, uh, are they going, are any of those transactions going to go into chapter 11, you know, and those raise, just speaking generally, uh, raise a couple of interesting issues. I mean, first and foremost is that, you know, uh, many of them have not been public long enough to actually have funded debt. They just have, um, you know, the assets that they, that they acquired in the, in the DSPAC, and the only real debt other than trade debt are really, frankly, these securities uh, class actions and uh, misstatement claims that are starting to crop up. So you uh, you might see some of these companies uh, file for Chapter 11 to effectively take themselves private again by like a 363 sale. Uh, you can see that right now in, in Enjoy Tech, which is in bankruptcy in, 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 in Delaware. You know, that went public, you know, six or nine months ago. And now is, is going back into it's going to effectively be acquired by its, its dip lender. 
Um, so, you know, that's more of a conventional sale. I think in the, in the future, some of these larger, um, uh, uh, or some of these companies with larger issues in terms of uh, litigation involving their um, their disclosures or restatements and whatnot, you know, it'll be interesting to see if you have um, uh, bankruptcy plans that are basically done to have take advantage of what's called Section 510B of the Bankruptcy Code, uh, uh, which are uh, claims on account of security interests. Could you somehow restructure those claims as part of a Chapter 11 case? That's going to be sort of the next um, wave of this. But, you know, you already are starting to see some businesses, some information businesses sort of market, uh, you know, what are the rate of redemptions, what's uh, cross-listed with like the stock trading price is sort of an indication of of um, whether these companies are distressed. And, you know, uh, to be totally honest, there's a lot, there's a high level of redemptions and a cross-listed with people who are, uh, have stocks trading at like under a buck now. So it seems like there's going to be some activity there, but, you know, in the absence of um, a credit uh, facility or a maturity or a liquidity issue, you know, they have a little bit more time to sort of take advantage of, of what they're going to do in these situations. Yeah, I, I think um, since we're talking about the evolution, I think we've been also seeing like converts that have been used by, you know, a lot of companies also like tech, you know, very low coupon, 2% convertible, 0% zero coupon. Um, it's kind of interesting um, that they're under the water and also I think just today in the news that, you know, SPAC has been so like deep in the winter, a SPAC advisor actually set up a liquidation um, arm of their advisory. <laughs> it's kind of interesting development for the SPAC market. Since we're talking about SPAC, but um, we've seen many tech companies that went public via SPAC the past two years. Um, I was wondering what are some of, some types of these companies, the sub-industries that are facing issues or could run into trouble? Um, he, do you, you want to Take that one yeah. I think the equity values of these companies post DSPAC are all performing pretty horribly uh, across the board. Like Greg mentioned a number below a dollar. Um, we're seeing that as well. I think in terms of where distress itself and not just stress is has manifested itself early on is there's there's a few groups of companies. One one would be some of these more mature companies that have been around a while, and we've all seen them uh, in distressed uh, areas, even pre-DSPAC. This was you know, a way for them to buy some more time, uh, boost liquidity. It was available capital. And you know, I, I think we saw a pause while you know, the, the liquidity helped, but now they're, they're back on the trajectory that they were and forced to deal with this now in public markets. Uh, there's another group of companies who were pre-revenue uh, and working on getting a product to market or working on you know, finding a market for maybe a product they had, but the market didn't exist. And those companies have started reporting, you know, early results way off of projections. You know, most of those companies had double digit uh, top line projections and we're seeing those get pushed out and the trajectory shallow out a little bit. And they're also, you know, they have issues with just profitability and, and liquidity. So those stocks are getting hit hard. Those companies are looking for new types of financing. Um, so I, I think, you know, where we saw maybe the them skip the LBO path, uh, there's potential that they're going to be raising some debt that's going to layer the equity in those scenarios as well. Uh, one other group where we, we've seen a little bit of activity is sort of these emerging companies in regulated industries or, or tangentially related to regulated industries where, you know, they're a little bit immature in their processes and They've run afoul of uh, you know, regulatory issues, 
that have got them in trouble with the government. And so those situations, you know, have also, you know, started to be, you know, particularly distressed early on. I think aside from that, there's there's signs of stress in various pockets of the market. You know, anyone in the the consumer tech space, you know, companies are seeing some slowdown there, right? And um, even within B2B, you know, if it's someone focused on advertising or marketing, those those sectors are starting to slow down uh, health tech. And the companies are really where they were once rewarded for chasing growth at all costs. Now you see them reevaluating those bets, trying to rationalize R&D spend, pay closer attention to their customer economics, and make sure that they're going to have the wherewithal to get through a recession or at least to the other side of, you know, this current financing environment, which is a bit uncertain. So that's that's what we're seeing. Yeah, I think you just have a function of, you know, a modest increase in interest rates, which may continue um, when you have, you know, kind of, you know, high growth businesses that are not producing any near term cash flow, which is kind of, you know, math. If you run a DCF, that it doesn't take a lot to bring down, you know, that present value of those that cash flow stream if it's so back end oriented. If you move interest rates a little bit higher, and I'm not so sure the market does that scientifically, but that's that's I think the the outcome of what we're seeing. And I look, I think there's some very good businesses that have gone public via SPACs. For example, some of the EV companies have great products. Um, but you know, they may have gone public a little bit prematurely, potentially clearly hitting their forecast is going to be a challenge in light of, uh, what's happening with, you know, on the cost side also with supply chains and ju- just getting products. So I, I, you know, I think the whole notion of putting out rosy projections in connection with a SPAC is also something that people are going to think long and hard about. Um, I, I for one think the SPAC market will at some point stabilize. I think there's a home for SPACs as a way to take the right company public, particularly with the right SPAC sponsor who's actually really adding value. I think that makes sense. Um, I think this today, actually a Bitcoin ATM machine uh, manufacturer was talked about going public via SPAC. So talk about adding crypto and SPACs. That's a bit unusual. Uh, we'll see if they're able to get the pipe lined up and get that done. But um you know, I think these are all just a phenomenon of, of, of a market that's acting more rational um, with the more risk averse and has greater op- options away from just growth equity. Great. Um, I, I actually did a little bit of research today. Just, you know, I think we're talking about EV, uh, just group auto into that category as well, consumer tech. And the third category would be like just moonshot, overly optimistic that are having you know, capability issues, just people don't believe that they can deliver. Some, you know, statistics for the consumer tech space, enjoy technology, file for bankruptcy. Um, there's a company called Affirm. They do installment loans for consumers to buy stuff. Their stock is down 82% from its peak to today. Uh, Offer Pass Solutions, it's a website that allows you to sell your home. Uh, stock down 88% from all time high. Peloton stock down 80, 92% from all time high. big today. In fact, they, you know, they reported today too. Um, Netflix stock down 67% from all time high. The all time high was all achieved, you know, pretty much at the end of last year or just during COVID. And another online car retailer, Kazoo stock down 96%. Um, I think he mentioned health tech. There's a diagnostics um, technology company called Lumira DX. Stock is down 87% from all-time high. 
for EV and an auto lucid um, EV vehicle manufactured stock down 70% from all time high. Uh, Nikola, same thing, 91% down from all time high. Tesla, 76%. Arrival down 97%. Um, and Holly Inc., I think it's the British um, EV company, stock down 58%. And those overshooting, in the overshooting um, projections category, Virgin Galactic, Space Flight, talking about Moonshot, stock down 89% from all time highs. Sensor Maker, Rockley Photonics, stock down 90%. So it's it's pretty amazing like how dramatic the, the drop has been for a lot of these tech um, companies. Hopefully, um, hopefully you're not reading your E-Trade account, Harvard. <laughs> no, I did. I, I was just Googling, like, you know, I was trying to do research what, what has happened to the space. I was just doing research. Uh, I know you guys don't want to talk about names, but... Yeah, but look, I do think the market's gotten ahead of it. It was ahead of itself, but I, I think a lot of the companies you listed um, actually may end up being very valuable companies. I mean, if you had this panel five, probably not even five years ago, maybe less than that, people were talking about liquidity issues at Tesla. Um, so, you know, uh, some of these are very good products. They just probably had valuations, which are way ahead of where they should have been. Um, and, you know, back to crypto, I think obviously that market too got way ahead of itself in terms of, you know, what the valuation should be, and where the use cases really are. Um, but that's not to say over a long period of time. And I don't mean long being 20 years. I mean, five plus or minus years, a lot of these valuations, we may look back and say, Hey, that was an unbelievable opportunity. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, just to build on that, you know, what you see over the last uh, you know decade or two is that these companies, uh, more and more companies kind of uh, ride like a rocket ship, not to build on the Virgin Galactic example, but um, they just come, you know, the, the, the highs are higher, but the lows get lower and they get lower faster because the, the markets are working, you know, they're overheated in some ways, they're working overtime. And uh, these companies, you know, either they don't have the product yet, but they might in the future, or they don't have sort of the controls. So, you know, it's sort of a, it's sort of just a testament to just how active the capital markets are um, every year building on, on the prior years. And that's why you have all these different names that are out there. But to, to, to Jason's point, you know, it, it, uh, for a lot of these, it seems like they're just probably a mismatch of, um, their readiness to be public companies and not really a reflection on um, their product or their promise. It's just finding the right owner or the right sponsor to guide them as they, as they develop. It's quite amazing. If you think about like the, like who, who gave them the cash, you know, the, the capital they needed and it's just poof, it's gone. It's kind of right. amazing to think about it. Great stuff. Uh, I'm also thinking about the, um, Restructurings in the tech space in the recent years, we've seen you know SunGuard, RiverVet, Skillsoft, uh, Clover uh, Technologies, and if we include some you know telecom elements, you know GTT Communication, Avaya, um, five years ago, there has been a lot of bankruptcy. There has not been a lot of bankruptcies in the, this space compared with maybe other industries, but you know we've seen out of poor uh, liability management. Maybe I was wondering if what, what the panelists think about. Um, this and if we will if we will see more um, bankruptcy filings and what would the the driving forces be? Um, Jason, do you want to get us started? Uh, sure. I, I think it, with respect to a lot of the companies you mentioned, um, the restructuring really was because the business model um, was failing. Um, you know, in the case of like a SunGuard, which you know I know pretty well, um, you know that was sort of. 
um, you know, outsourced recovery, um, you know, in a physical sense at data centers, and then all that moved to the cloud by way of example. Um, so that business model was really challenged, Skillsoft similarly. Um, and so I think, um, you know, a lot of the tech restructuring that happened so, thus far have really been driven by the fact that they've been disrupted by better and newer technology. Um, and therefore, those have been very challenging restructuring because the base, putting aside even the leverage on the companies, the base businesses themselves have been tough. Um, and have required real operational change. Um, and, you know, my own experience is making big operational changes to companies and, and Heath can chime in. Um, that's hard. Um, particularly when your business model has really been changed and disrupted. Uh, you know, but again, that was what gives me a little bit of caution on a go forward basis. Um, uh, with tech overall, because it is so subject to disruption. And you've got a lot of smart people trying to build better mousetraps consistently. Um, and whether you're levered or not, you know, certain business models may be at risk because somebody, you know, just comes up with something better. Um, and these companies need to constantly be evolving. They need to spend a lot of money on R&D. You know, Avaya is more of a hardware company, um, but, you know, they've basically gotten lapped by Cisco and Microsoft, for example, um, because they, you know, were levered and didn't have the capability to continue uh, to spend on R&D. So I, I think a lot of these businesses also are better off run with less leverage because it gives them more flexibility uh, to adapt their business model um, and if they get highly levered, then that's a challenge. Um, so we'll just have to see, but clearly just the math will tell you when it's almost 20% of the leverage loan market and probably equal or more of the private credit market, uh, you know, tech's going to be an area where you are going to have some restructurings eventually. Yeah. I think historically, and Jason mentioned earlier that there wasn't a lot of debt on the companies. So that's obviously one of the things that puts companies into a chapter 11, you know, the other things why people file is, you know, because you have legacy contracts that are really expensive or you have, you know, pension liabilities or things that are going to kind of constrain the company going forward. And in tech, you really haven't had much of that. And so when you do the cost benefit analysis of, of filing versus working to get something done out of court, as long as the capital structure is, is simple enough, out of court wins almost every time. But you know, that that's changing. I think even even without that, I've seen some pretty uh, hairy equity capital structures that have, you know, at least put us on the edge of filing some of these tech companies where you just, you can't get through all the consent rights and um, get to a, a financing that a company needs. So I think there's going to be more of it. I agree with Jason. And, you know, the the increasing uh, amount of recurring revenue here and these business models and lenders comfort loaning into them is going to create that solution or that that situation. Right. Um, but when, 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 when we do see uh, a chapter 11 filing, what, why usually uh, did those filings happen compared with out of court? I've seen like, you know, for tax reasons or holdouts, I feel like those are pretty much like, I don't know if Greg wants to say something. About yeah, yeah, I think, it, I think it, it, it's it's sort of two different extremes of the same issue, which is your equity structure will really have a big in, in, input into dictating it. So if you're a large public company, it's very hard to do an out-of-court restructuring, um, out restructuring because there's just like limits on how much equity of the company you can give to the creditors. So unless they're willing to like, you know, just uh, extend their debt 
you know, a really long time or get some kind of pay down or something, you can't give them equity, which is usually the big, um, you know, one of the big uh, factors in these out of court workouts um, without doing a chapter 11 case, uh, given, you know, the securities regulations and NYSE standards. And then just to build off the point that Keith said on the private companies, you know, they've gone through, you know, uh, rounds A through Z or double A. Um, of the funding. And, you know, unless you have everyone singing from the same sheet of music there, it's very hard to get the level of consent. So, you know, this isn't really a tech company, but there was a recent filing um, of, a, of a sort of a pharmaceutical healthcare supplier in, in Delaware that kind of gives you a flavor of what you might see in these other ones, which is they couldn't, they couldn't get total consensus among their founders and the subsequent investors to do a restructuring. So they, they filed it in it to do a chapter 11 sale and then that in turn, you know, they, they filed because they couldn't get the consents. And then in the chapter 11, you had a very interesting dispute about whether they had the authorization to actually file it. So, you know, I think I think you're uh, you're going to see, you know, the public companies are just going to be kind of constrained to do something out of court. And then these private companies, you might have uh, this issue with uh, the consents, given all of their uh, rounds of VC funding out there. But in chapter 11, you know building on some of the other points, you know, I think it's going to be really interesting to see valuation and feasibility be litigated in some of these cases, you know, uh, building off of Jason's point, you know, companies that went through a couple of years ago were market leaders that just were burdened by lots of debt. You know, they've been, they, um, I'm not speaking about anyone in particular, but, you know, they've been lapped or are having uh, product issues. So, you know, what, if they're in chapter 11 to deal with their debt, what's the feasibility? Is there a reorganization possible? Is it a, uh, you know, is it going to be some kind of sale? That's going to be one of the more interesting things here is as so many of these companies building on the SPAC point have gone public and there's so much more competition in particular yeah. aspect of the tech space, you're going to see a lot of, um, I think, a lot of challenges to doing like a, a reorg with a, a real feasibility or, or a valuation case versus just sort of selling things off. Right. That's valuations interesting because, you know, a lot of these companies trade at very high multiples, but they're growing. And then, you know, once you start to see revenue contraction, um, you know, you're also should see multiple contraction. So even though your quote comps may still be trading at high, high multiples, you know, you're losing out to those, that peer group. So that, that relative, you know, comparable multiple is probably not relevant and probably meaningfully overstated. Um, so I think you'll, you'll see, you know, you're going to get hit two ways from a valuation perspective, both in terms of cash flow or revenue declining, as well as multiple de degradation as part of this. I just um, want to know what Jason said like five minutes ago, just because it's important. You know, uh, the perennial and ultimate driving force for restructuring is one of them is old, you know, old tech being replaced by new tech. So I find that very important to know. And also, like, uh, I think from a rivalry and um, sale and restructuring perspective, the Avaya, um, there was like a giant. So like a, the largest individual shareholder, uh, they pu he published a um, 13D and talked about ways to improve Avaya's businesses and avoid a filing mission, like a strategic preferred, maybe provided by Cisco or Microsoft. So I, and maybe eventually 2024, 2025 for those two companies to take over um, Avaya. So I thought that was interesting to note as well from um, uh, competition and restructuring m uh, I think we're, I want to leave time for Q&A, but I have more questions. So if there's any uh, questions, I'm, I'm monitoring it, but I'm just going to keep 
throwing questions at our panelists, but I'm, if there are any questions that I see, I will address those. Um, I was also wondering, um, when the company files, a tech company files, what are some of the most important things to address um, when they are pre either preparing or where they're already in a Chapter 11 proceeding? Um, Greg, do you wanna take this one? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think, um, you know, the, the old adage is it's really easy to get into Chapter 11 because you pay $1,700 and you're in. The really hard part is getting out. So kind of building on my last point, you know, I think that's particularly important in, um, in these tech companies is having a cent is maybe almost apropos to what you see in retail restructurings. It's such a premium on having an exit plan or a strategy to get out when you get in because these companies are so focused on growth and building market share. You know, that's just being a chapter 11 is just a huge problem for them. So having like some type of really coherent story to tell your customers, tell your vendors is really important. So you don't have, um, <clears throat> you don't dissipate significant value while in chapter 11. Um, you know, I think the, the other interesting thing that I think you're going to start seeing here in these chapter 11 um, cases involving the tech companies is, you know, since the last round of, um, uh, of tech bankruptcies, particularly in the early 2000s, and there was a few, you know, a crop that came up a few years later, there's been such an outgrowth of um, cross-border uh, restructuring developments. You're going to see a lot of questions asked about how yeah, can you can you use the Chapter Eleven process as a sword or a shield to uh, to address and protect your uh, your IP in foreign jurisdictions? How does a tech bankruptcy and the issues here in the United States? How does that get translated into some of these foreign countries? Because I think you see you've already started to see news about this. You know, some foreign countries are acting opportunistically to kind of retake IP for you know U.S. filers when they file. You know, I think you're going to start seeing a lot more of that, just given how much more cross-border activity and, and focus there are among restructuring professionals about protecting these companies if they if they file, given their their cross-border you know non-debtor assets. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's interesting because IP clearly is, I mean, that really is the value of these businesses that plus their customer list effectively because there's not, you know, hard asset collateral. So I, I think the valuation around IP also, to the extent it's being done more on a, um, you know, kind of a desktop or, you know, by an advisor as opposed to through an auction process. I think, you know, there's clearly some examples over the past 10 years where, um, you know, Nortel probably being the best one where the, proposed valuation was meaningfully off by many multiples of where the, the uh, an ultimate auction cleared. So I think you'll start to see, uh, you know, some of those issues. And I agree with Greg, I think a lot of these companies um, suffer greatly in bankruptcy because the switching costs may not be that high. Um, now, if you're deeply embedded into your customer, that's different. But um, if, sure, you know, sure. if you're a cloud-based service provider, and the switching, you know, the barriers to switching are not that high. You know, a lot of people, if you know, in, in chief CTOs don't necessarily understand restructuring. So um, if you're buying a, a product or a service and the company files, your easiest thing may be to do is just switch. Um, so I think, you know, uh, you know, more prepacks, more expedited chapter 11 processes are probably warranted in some of these instances. Yeah, it's it's almost it's cliche a little bit, but these things are are really melting ice cubes. I think uh, your talent and your customers are both incredibly mobile and in high demand. So you know, I think you have to expect on the customer side, your competitors are offering some pretty 
sweet deals to switch. And like Jason said, the SaaS business model makes that really easy. Um, and and then employees, especially on the tech side, your your engineers and your developers are in incredibly high demand. So you've got to make sure that they're retained on day one. They see the vision of where you're going and not worried about, you know, losing their job through that process. So that's that's key and, and move fast. Don't let any questions come up. Otherwise, it's it's a tough, tough path to getting out, as Greg said. Great. Great. Um, it's very important. And a um, little off topic, but it's very trendy. So I want to ask this question. Uh, many of these tech companies are well-known brands, especially the consumer-facing ones, and their business lines can be considered sexy, uh, having to do with astronauts or next-gen vehicles, et cetera. But, and we seem to have this meme stock phenomenon started with um, GameStop and Hertz and then AMC, but then beyond uh, Revlon. I was wondering, you know, maybe you know, how distressed companies may be able to take advantage of that, if possible. I'm going to throw this to Greg because I think he has um, experience. Um. Yeah. You know, um, I, I think it's an interesting question. It's just sort of um, like from a, an advisor perspective and I'm sure from like an investor perspective, it's like catching lightning in a bottle. Like, you know, sure, it's great. It's great if you're AMC or something and become a meme stock um, or, or any other company out there. But like, you know, it, I, I kind of scratch my head when I see these advisors on TV or the internet advertising their services about how to become a meme stock. I, I just don't, I don't think it's, a you know, it's like kind of a good to have, I guess, if it happens, but I wouldn't put all your eggs in that basket and people, you know, God bless them if they can make a career out of trying to sell that service. I'd love to try to understand it, but um, it just seems like sort of a hard thing to, to map. And if, you know, honestly, if you're a company that, you know, your board is considering, uh, you know, how to how to become a meme stock. That's usually a sign that you probably have more deeper fundamental problems that you might want to to look into. But yeah, and, you know, I think it's it's going to be an interesting variable. Um, you know, as these um, some of these you know restructurings progress, I regrettably lost my my motion yesterday in the Revlon case. But you know, you're going to continue seeing um, you know companies. I think in Chapter Eleven that have stock that continues to trade at pretty high prices and, and, you know, figuring out how that works. And those is going to be one of the interesting questions over the next you know, few months, year or so. Yeah. I mean, I was just echo. I mean, you saw, you had that in Hertz. You've had that more recently now in Revlon. Now Hertz ultimately the valuation did increase dramatically uh, throughout the case. Um, but, you know, at the time it was trading more like a meme stock than based upon fundamentals as an investor. Well, I mean, it's really, I think trying to call a meme stock is not really investing. It's kind of trying to get lucky. Um, and if you do fundamental valuation work, obviously a lot of these things, you know, the valuation is just not justifiable. And very often, you know, you, you should go up the capital structure to buy bonds that are trading at a steep discount to par versus buying an equity that's arguably meaningfully over, overvalued. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, I do think, you know, you as a fiduciary is a company as a fiduciary. If, if that's a tool available to you, like AMC, for example, you should take advantage of it. You know, AMC just got pretty creative. They issued this preferred, um, because for technical reasons, they couldn't issue common. I thought that was pretty clever move. And if this allows you to buy time, delever and otherwise, you know, you should do that. I think you need to do that as a fiduciary, but also, you know, in the case of selling equity in that context, 
you know, kind of comes back to the regulatory framework. You know, I think the regulators do a lot better job there making sure that people are not, you know, being duped effectively than what they're doing in crypto by not regulating at all. And you've got your meme tokens in crypto, like, you know, Dogecoin for, you know, et cetera. Yeah, definitely mm-hmm. a little see that we feel caution and warning, like thinking about Bed Bath Beyond. It, it was, well, maybe it still is a meme stock, but definitely, you know, very volatile. volatile. Um, I think we have a question that came, I think it's for Jason. Um, back to crypto, just from in the investor's, investor's perspective, how do you navigate the volatile um, crypto landscape to find attractive um, investment opportunities? Um, look, I, I think people generally think about volatility very negatively. Um, and, you know, you've got academics, for example, put together like sharp ratio statistics as a means to measure risk. Um, and, you know, the, you know, it's basically return over volatility and the volatility is kind of the negative part of that. Um, but volatility also presents opportunity. Um, just because an asset's volatile doesn't mean it's not necessarily um, you know, can't generate a very strong return. In fact, if you actually look at the sharp ratio, which, you know, over the last 10 years, Bitcoin sharp ratio is, is materially better than virtually any other asset class just because it's outperformed. Um, you know, it's almost double the sharp of the S&P. And if you look at the sharp ratio of high yield, leverage loans, bonds, it's, it's, they're virtually zero. Um, so just because an asset is volatile doesn't mean you can't make money from it. And also, sometimes volatility is your friend um, because you can sell vol. If you're a sophisticated investor, you can trade options. Options are priced off volatility. You can actually take in that premium as, as part of your investment thesis uh, and make make money. Uh, if they're, they're and it's also you know you know for example, you could even write a cover call and you know effectively create a static uh, instrument and, and create yield off of it by selling rolling options, for example. So, um, you know, volatility cuts both ways, I think is just something to be very mindful of. But I think people who are successful investing in volatile markets also have a, a fundamental underpinning of what they think something's worth, um, which, you know, like for a meme stock or a meme token, you can't really do. Uh, other areas, you know, I think of, of, of tokened assets, I think you can do, um, you know, Ethereum, for example, you can look at the transaction volume in U.S. dollars on Ethereum and get a sense as to what that network is effectively worth, um, just by way of example. So I, I think you have to have some fundamental underpinning to take advantage of, of volatile markets. Great. Uh, I think we're running out of time. Uh, this has been a great panel discussion. Thank you so much for your wisdom and insight, Greg, Keith, and Jason. Um, a replay of this webinar will be on Reorg's website within two business days. And we'll also send out a survey to attendees to gather feedback and webinar ideas. So please share your thoughts with us. Uh, Reorg is a global provider of credit intelligence data and analytics for law firms, investors, and advisors. So please reach out to us if you are new to Reorg and want to know more. And again, a big thank you to everyone who joined us today, uh, as well as our panelists, Greg, Keith, and Jason. Thanks, everyone, and have a great day. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. You can find all our podcasts on the Reorg.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next Friday.